I was gonna do like a, like a party people in, like intro, but then I like a, I couldn't DJ, commit DJ to it. Cool edit. Yeah, okay. no. But hello, everybody. This is uh, Chris Denson from Innovation Crush. Uh, thank you for tuning in. If you're tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things creativity and business and in life and people who are making those things happen. Um, and today we have a really awesome guest. Uh, say hello, Matt. Hi. Hi. That's it. Say hello. See. All hello. Right. <laughs> um, I guess for for starters, give give the people a little bit of a one hundred and one on uh, who, who you are. Sure. Uh, so uh, I started with a, a couple partners of mine, an artist management company, about almost ten years ago now, coming up on our ninth year, or wrapping up our ninth year, I should say. Um, so we started in uh, 07 and it started out as a DJ management company, and over the last ten years, it's pretty much progressed into a full scale management company. Artists like. Uh, Blink-182, Steve Aoki, Jane's Addiction, um, Air, Fisher Spooner, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Liz Fair. You name Anybody it. we might have heard of. Uh, there's an underground <laughs> British. <laughs> That's awesome. So, I mean, 10 years, not a bad not a bad roster, not a long. Has it felt like a long road or, or has it kind of gone by in a flash? It's gone by relatively quickly. We've, we've had a couple of iterations of the company when right. we first started it out. It was meant to be, you know, when it first started out, I was doing uh, a DJ named Steve Aoki on his own. And uh, my current partner, my partners, uh, Paul Rosenberg and, and Lawrence Favre, were doing uh, DJ AM, uh, who had passed away in 09. But he was kind of the king of the mashup scene, of, you know, dating celebrities and all that stuff. And the original idea was let's get all these kind of celebrity DJs under one roof and sort of unionize and, you know, combine our efforts over the years. You know, we we realized with the changing you know sound of music and DJ culture that it was really about people who make music, and then once we focus on that, then there were no limits to who you would work with. You know, right. If it was a producer, if it was a rapper, if it was a, a singer, if it was a, a rock band, we would do it. So we made that switch right around 2009, 2010, kind of along the lines of uh, AM's passing. Yep. And also, Steve had grown out of being a celebrity DJ. Uh, or a hipster DJ, depending on you know where you where you where you were looking at him from, and he'd run into a full time producer, kind of king of the world, touring the world, and we were seeing his career trajectory, right, and a lot of other career trajectories, and we decided to kind of chase that path. Let's talk uh, origin story for a second. Um, you know, what were you doing before the you know before Dexstar was a was a thing? Sure. Um, so I uh, grew up on the West Coast. I've been in LA pretty much my entire life, although my family's from the East Coast. Um, went to UCLA, uh, went, went locally to high school here at, uh, Hawthorne, uh, just in the shadow of the airport, um, knew pretty early on, I wanted to do entertainment. Um, there's no, it's US, UCLA, unlike USC, uh, doesn't have like entertainment majors. So USC actually has like a, I think a music production major, a music industry major, and they have all kinds of very specific majors. What do they call it? Like a liberal arts schools. Right. They're real broad. So all I did was econ, busy con. Um, but to get my experience, I interned as much as possible. Originally, I thought I wanted to do film. So I uh, interned for a couple PR companies. My longest one, uh, I ended up interning for uh, Brett Ratner. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this is right when Rush Hour had happened. Yep. And he was working on Rush Hour 2. And then it came out while I was there. And it was their biggest, New Line's biggest film of all time. And he was still kind of dabbling in hip-hop stuff. Uh, yeah. he, he was a music video producer prior Small so, story. I met Brett when I was at the New York Film Academy, and he was like the biggest ambassador of the New York Film Academy. Yeah, right on the cusp of like the whole Rush Hour success. He had come out of that that, that film, New York yeah, Film School. Him, exactly. him, him and uh, Rebecca Gayhart, who I think he was dating or engaged yep. to, they were all like out of that scene. 
Um, so he had, you know, he'd come up, he had come up doing hip hop videos, Wu Tang Clan. Like his roster was the greatest hip hop videos of all time. And then he got to do like Money Talks or something. Right. Um, so incredible I, movie, by the way. Money Talks, my favorite. <laughs> you're, you say that joking. That is my favorite Chris Tucker movie. Really? I still have the VHS. Nice. I when I threw out all my VHS. You know, you're like, a collector. I'm learning. You got your, you your fifth a, grade paper lot. in the car. You've got VHS tapes. If you saw my office, the amount of original Nintendo games and like RoboCop statues would. That's a fun me. office to go to. That that's that's perfect. There's a, there's there's definitely like a, a Star Wars ad at in one corner and a Goonies sloth in another corner. Rocky Road. He's about too tall. <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I had interned there thinking I wanted to do film. Um, I learned two things from that experience. And you know, I'll credit Brett, actually, funnily enough, who I've actually now reconnected with like 10 plus years later. We're now pretty friendly. Um, if you asked me, I asked him back then, he had no clue who I was. I was just like the, the intern for the assistant's assistant. Uh, what I learned, though, was one, when they gave me like actual stuff to do, like, can you read the script? And you know, something nobody else wants to read when you read it and tell us what you think. I just couldn't bring myself to like, it was like homework. Right. Um, but when it was, you know, he was still doing music video shoots on the side. Um, just like, you know, back then music videos did have million dollar budgets. So it was a, for a director, it's easy hundred, 200 grand to make for three days work. So he would occasionally do those, And then he, he would do something like, Oh, you know, DMX left his shoes at the hotel. Can you drop them off at, at Def Jam? And like, yes. I, mean, I couldn't be couldn't be more excited yeah. to carry DMX's Timberlands. <laughs> <laughs> Did you bark when you went to the door? You're like, ah, ah. I, I, I knocked very hard, and I lingered. And you know that thing where like you linger into some place just hoping to get noticed. I don't know what I was thinking. It was, <laughs> yeah, you just kind of hang out in the lobby longer than like poke your head down. It's like the when you wear a good outfit, and yeah. then you didn't see enough people, so you just like you go out another it's hour. Like, it's like, like when you see a baseball team practicing. You're like, oh, I'll take a few swings. <laughs> you're thinking the coach is gonna be like that kid, that kid. I need him. <laughs> Um, it was, so I just kind of, I started, I realized he would do, there are other stuff like, you know, uh, photocopy a book and drop it off at Russell Simmons house. I want to, we want to do this movie together. Yeah. Couldn't be more excited to sit there in the, in the, in that printing. Like back then you actually literally stick the book down, print one page, turn the page, stick the book down, Xerox another page. Wow. And I would do it for like two hours. I couldn't be more excited just because I knew I'd get to go to Russell Simmons' house and maybe I might see him or his assistant or somebody, I'll be one degree of separation from Russell Simmons. So I realized very quickly. And then also, you know, I don't know, I'm sure you know, in the film industry, it's a different beast altogether in that the personalities are very big. Oh, yeah. The egos are very big. I saw plenty of like phones being thrown at assistants' heads and that kind of the RE gold, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 I forget the, the, his assistant's name. But the, yeah, that was very, yeah. yeah, it was very much alive. Like in that office, but everywhere you went. Yeah, and I'm not that personality. I'm I've always been pretty calm and and you know assertive versus like scream and yell, which a lot of people do. Um, and not that, not that that's a bad way to do business because it does, certainly works for some yeah, people. Yeah, well, there's a the time and a place for everything. I, I feel like it's, Rob it's, Emanuel's mayor and, and Ari's <laughs> running WME. You know, what more right. do you want? You know, so there's it definitely works for some people. You know, if they do it when they when they know how to do it properly. I'm not that guy. So I realized there. I'm a. I'm more interested in music, and b. If I want to stay in the film. I probably don't have enough of a personality to fight with these people or, you know, I'll, I'll get trampled. Right. Meanwhile. So, so what it's I, very self-aware though. I, I mean, that, you know, as, as an intern, right. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So, so um, for, just to you know, fast forward from there, um, I, I, hip hop was my love at the time. So I really wanted to work at Def Jam, literally open the phone book, record label under R and Def Jam was there. They had a West coast satellite office for like radio. I, I called like just cold called and, Talked to some some lady, uh, and and I kept calling her for about six or seven months until she finally gave me an internship. 
I ended up interning there for a couple of years. And when I graduated, I, that's where I wanted to work. Um, I got the interview. I think it was with Kevin Lyles at the time. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, look, you could, you, everyone speaks highly of you. You could do it, but you'll need to move to New York. That's where our, our main office is. There isn't much to do in LA. Um, and I wasn't up for moving to New York. So I, I kindly passed. I graduated from high school, took a dot-com job. You know, at that time, it was 2000 So dot-com was sort of happening. And sent my resume everywhere. Um, ended up landing, funnily enough, at a dance record label, which at the time was the number one, number two dance label in the, in the country. It was called Moonshine. And, and I was going to raves on weekends as like a teenager. Right. Um, or I guess I was 21, 22 at the time. Um, and, and it never occurred to me in a million years, like that could be like a career, like working with DJs and, or at, 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 even at an independent record label. So this is I, something you just did like on your own, was, like yeah, yeah. a scene I, you were into. I was into hip hop and I would, on the weekend we would go to raves for, for fun, but it wasn't like a, a, a right. career path. It was just like <laughs> some place to go get high, you know, but, um, Colin. No skin. <laughs> but you know, I, I remember running into somebody and, and, and I met someone from the label. Um, at, at like a conference, I, I, I volunteered at some conferences, a music thing, and I met someone who worked there. And it, and I, not that I appealed to him or talked about it, but it just a light bulb went off. Like, oh, I applied to every single record label under the sun. Nobody got back to me, and the ones that did said sorry. You know, the MP3 had just happened. Napster was taking over, right? And like income was down like fifty percent. So nobody was hiring. Everybody was firing. Um, and then it, the light bulb went off that I didn't even think about independent record labels. It never even crossed my mind. Cause also in hip hop, that like there there weren't really like yeah was, even the independent like labels had this is like, it's like it was, Master P was like the the blue the blue yeah but even like there were independent labels called like Rockus and they were still yeah, yeah. they had been absorbed yeah. by by major labels actually what's happening now in dance music had happened in hip hop like I, I often make that comparison of '90s hip hop to like current dance music right. it, it transcended from being sort of a a cultural niche to being like everything to everyone you mm-hmm. know X Games you know had a hip hop. You know, interludes. Every D, every band had a DJ in it, um, so it just never really occurred to me. When I thought about it, I literally emailed everybody on the website because back then no one knew any better than put like the president all the way down to like the interns. You know, email on the contacts page. I got a job there. Uh, I totally lied. I told him that I uh, I did street team because uh, that's what hip hop was known for. Was yeah. all the posters you go to like a Jay Z concert? There'd be posters like six blocks away. So I told him I did that. And he's like, well, that's what we need. I was like, great. I'm your, I'm your guy. I put up all the Jay-Z posters. Yeah. You did? Yeah. 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 That, that okay. I mean, I knew the guy that did it. <laughs> Two days later, that guy came in. And he had the interview, too. <laughs> I put up the Jay. You're lying, kid. <laughs> I, funnily enough, I ran into the guy that uh, did do Street Team back then. I like Power 106 like a few a few years ago. I was like, man, I definitely used your resume. Uh, so I, look, long story short, I got that job. Quickly moved up. I started out as a street team kid um, or running their street team, and I ended up being the marketing director. They had bought a magazine called BPM, which was a big dance music magazine at the time. Uh, I jumped over there for uh, – I, I think they, my bosses were smart enough at the time to see that the music industry was starting to crumble a little bit at the mm-hmm. time. And they had this great magazine that was growing. So like, well, we have an asset in this kid who I was 23, 24, 25 at the time. Let's have him work on BPM instead or in addition. Not pay me anymore, but just give me more work to do. I was really pissed off about it at the time. Right. In retrospect, it was like the best thing that they could have done for me. A, I kept my job, and B, I was so under the guise of like, I want to work at a record label. That's my dream. I never signed up to work at a, I never signed up to work at a magazine. Um, what I realized within weeks was that at a record label, you get to work with the artists that are on your record label. You might be a fan of Jay Z. You're never gonna work with Jay Z. You work with the artists at your record label. Um, on the off chance one of your artists work with their artists, sure. Right. At a magazine. 
the world is your oyster. Any you you see something you like, uh, a new skate deck, um, some product, and in 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 Sky Mall, you know, whatever you see. Hey, we should do a story on this. We should reach out. So it was it became my excuse to connect to anything I, I was interested in. Awesome. So the main the main thing I did at the time was they asked me, you know, what what are some marketing ideas? And and I had gone to um, there was a magazine back then called Big Brother, mm-hmm. which was a uh, Larry large F- black men. Sort of. Okay. Like, like that, but without <laughs> large black men. Oh, okay. Perfect. I, I know that magazine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, instead of large black men, it was young white skaters. Okay. So quite close enough. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same family. <laughs> um, no, it, it was a really controversial skate magazine that Larry Flint had, had bought. Um, and funnily enough, I remember after, after a couple of years of it, he folded it because they had gotten into so much trouble. And I, I think Larry Flint was thinking at the time, like, I'm getting into enough trouble with like with like titties and vaginas. I don't need a skate <laughs> magazine that's probably breaking even. Because right. I remember the time, like they, I remember they did an issue and it was like, um, it was their kids issue, and they put the logo in all children's building blocks, and it was like, interviews with kids skaters, <laughs> but they're asking questions like, do you have your pubes yet? Like, have you have what? you have you had sex yet? They're like twelve year old, and like, and I remember for whatever reason it just got picked up by the news and it was on CNN that like skate magazine owned by Larry Flint is like infecting our youth. You know, oh, like, that's. Oh. So, so it quickly got shut down. But the cool thing they had done was every time they'd do an issue, they would do a party around it. And I, I was in a skate culture as well at the time. So I would go to these parties at the Roxy whenever they had a, a, an issue come out. And it would be like Johnny Knoxville and Tony Hawk and all these kind of cool counterculture celebrities and, and a bunch of industry people. So you'd meet and – and I was really, really into skate culture. So like I'd meet some guy from DC Shoes or whatever. Like somehow I'll trade you CDs for shoes. You know, we'll figure out some, right. some swap. Um so it occurred to me that we we don't we're not doing anything like that, and, and nothing like that existed for the dance music industry at all, or really for the music industry, per, you know, at, at that point. So I started doing these parties every time we'd put out an issue. Originally, we just ask whoever, whatever, uh, whatever DJ or, or or artist that we were kind of really friendly with who would do it for free. Yep. And we would just invite industry, and basically over three years of it, you know, they went from I think we did a party at some crappy bar in beverly hills upstairs for like 60 people by the end of it um we were doing them at like avalon in hollywood i think we would have five thousand people show up for a place that held 1100 the line would wrap around the block wow. you know? yeah and we would have you know at the time they were the king would be like paul oakenfold and the crystal method and junkie xl and we have the biggest acts all play and our whole theme was get huge acts that you see like at the hollywood bowl and get them to play the smallest room possible so we'd always have more demand and then that became a big income generator for the. For so that's the really smart. Like, I mean, as it, far as like a business strategy, and... it didn't really occur to me at the time yeah. that it was it was it was a strategy. So that was a cool marketing thing, and I, I get to become become more popular because I'm a guy throwing parties. Um, but what it ended up doing was we would then go to you know in the magazine business, it's all about added value. So you would sell some somebody like whenever you go to like a spin magazine party hosted by, you know. Uh, uh, some vodka company. Yep. Usually, what you'll find is there's a bunch of pages of ma- of advertising for that vodka company, the magazine, and what they told them is, "Hey, you know, buy ten pages, and we'll throw a party, you know, after the Grammys for you." So we started doing that. Started having sponsors on there, and then the parties got to be so big, the the model flipped, and we started getting people that wanted to sponsor, spend all this money on the party, and we right. said, "Okay, well, if you spend, if you sponsor the party for fifty grand, we'll give you two pages in the magazine for free." Right. Yeah, and. <laughs> Now, where it got a little dicey then, um, and it was fine with me, but it, it pissed off like the editors, was the parties got big enough that I could dictate who would be on the cover based on who I could get to play the party for free. So I'd walk in and be like, hey, Mark Ronson said he'll DJ for free if we put him on the cover. And then our, our, our publisher would be like, great, we could sell Mark Ronson until the cows come home. Right. He's on the cover. 
And then we have to walk over to the editor and be like, guess who's on your next cover? <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes it was great. Like once on I mean, we had James Murphy from LCD Sound System do it. Everyone was happy. Other times we had like, a, I mean, we had Steve Aoki. Mm-hmm. And that was a really, that one actually was one that was very controversial. And this is how I got to know him. So at the time, Aoki was kind of the king of the hipsters. And this is like the 2003 to 2007 era where every band had started with the word the. Mm-hmm. So the Strokes, the Killers, the Thes literally existed. The yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Steve had come out of that culture, you know, very, very hipster. And he had signed this band called Block Party before anyone had heard of him. He literally found them in the UK. He had also signed a band called The Kills before that. So Block Party, this is the guy in America who broke the kills. Mm -hmm. We want him to put out our first EP. Block Party exploded in popularity. You know, they sold 250,000 copies of this EP. It ended up going to Atlantic where they did did like a platinum album or something. And Steve became known as the golden ear, you know, and Pharrell and Jay-Z, all people were reaching out to him saying, we should start a label together. You should come work with me. Like, you you know all these cool hipster things. And everybody thought that that was where the money was at the time. This is also when Jay-Z was running Def Jam, which was not I and Def Jam. And The Killers was was their biggest act. Got it. So everybody was trying to like get in on the hipster thing. Um, so we had put Steve on the cover because he was DJing these parties that he was throwing. And it would always, he was a really, I mean, and he knows, it, it, we both joke about He was a really bad DJ because he wasn't DJing to be a DJ. He was DJing because he owned a record label and he wanted people to buy the music. So he would throw parties and he would play the music and someone had to DJ for free. Yeah. So he did it. And he had a huge vinyl collection. So, and but his, his shtick was kind of that he would, it was really funny at the time that you know we would kind of make fun of the celebrity DJs who would who would play Britney Spears and Christina like this is the cheesiest of the cheesiest stuff to to right. to douchebags and 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 button up shirts buying bottles overpriced you know blah blah blah. Steve would play the exact same music, but in a different setting it became ironic. So he would play Block Party into Britney Spears into like Jackson Five, back into the Killers, right? And the hipsters would lose their shit because for them. It was like ironically fun. Like everyone really does love "Since You've Been Gone" by Kelly Clarkson. Nobody won't sing that when you turn off the sound. The whole club, right? It could be all black people, all hipsters, all everyone sings that hook. And every night Steve would play it. He cut it out. You know, five hundred hipsters and skinny jeans and cigarettes and (laughs) palm malls are all singing Kelly Clarkson "Since You've Been Gone" in unison. Right. Cheesiest moment in history, but together. Yeah, you know, we're cheesy together. So Steve had become known as like kind of this little hipster cultural icon. And um, we had put him on the cover. And the parties had become so big that we were doing them in different cities. They were doing in L.A., New York, San Francisco, and sometimes Miami. So I would go on little tours with artists like, hey, we're going to do four parties now. And we'd go to all these different cities. And me and Steve kind of stuck, struck up a friendship. You know, I was still getting paid pretty crappy. You know, but I, I people thought I made a lot of money because I was, I was kind of a popular person in the nightlife scene. Right. Um, so at one point I asked Steve, you know, who... Who does your uh, who, who books these shows for you? Because I, I always deal with you directly, and it's really difficult because like you never answer your email. And I can even correct that. He answered his email, but like two to four weeks late. But on like like clockwork, you could get an email from him every single day, but it was always two right. To it was four. backlogged. Yeah. yeah, you could just tell he was like backlogged. <laughs> and so he was like, "Yeah, I, I do it myself." And I was like, "Well, I'll do it for you." Like I and I was doing some of these parties. I was like, "I could just plug you in all these clubs that I'm already become friendly with the owners. You're an easy name to sell because you know I don't know if you know his background, but." His father's Rocky Aoki, yep. or passed away, but you have founder of Benny Hanna. So he had sort of this socialite aura about him, although he wasn't People really. People were like, super curious about, like, it was super curious about It's Steve. a weird. I used to work for the Magic Conference in Las Vegas. Yeah. And we had booked we him when he was dealing year. with, like, the heavyweights. And, you know, um, we painted a big mural while he DJed and I, uh, on the show floor. I, I went to Magic every year. I threw a party at Magic every year for either yeah. Vapors or BPM Magazine. Yeah. 
we threw parties probably when you were there at Trist, which was like the the biggest magic party was our party. And we yep. would get Mark Ronson and the Misfits, I mean, the Misshapes and Steve and all these celebrities, Jazzy Jeff, whoever we could get, we would put them at, that was our biggest party of the year. Yep. Anyways, so long story short, um, we did a handshake deal at the valet. That has, you know, we've, that has stood, t- the, you know, the test of time. Now it's 10, 10 plus years we've been working together. Um, and at the time, my, I mean, I remember very distinctly a thousand dollars, thousand bucks was my goal. If I could make a thousand dollars off this guy a month, my rent's paid. And by a 25 year old standard, if your rent's paid, you're rich. <laughs> exactly. Like, everything you made is just sitting in your pocket waiting to be spent. Cause that's your number one expense. Like whatever, whatever it was the time, like 800, $900. Yeah. I think I might, I might've made like 1500 or 600 bucks a month. So like, Thousand. That's how most most of my salary all went to, exactly. to that, and then low overhead. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that was my big time goal. I remember talking, trying to get him a business manager, and someone saying, "You know, this guy's great, but you, you have to make at least ten thousand a month for him to consider you." I'm like, pipe dream. Like, let's 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 get realistic. That's like ten years down the road, right? So, anyways, we we started working together. I kept my job at BPM. Um, funnily enough, I did mention it to them. You know, just in in like. Candid to be candid and stuff. I remember the exact response was, and this is right when the ma- the the record label had folded and they're just focused on the ma- the magazine. And I remember my boss said, you know, I remember the exact words were, "If I never have to talk to a DJ again, it'll be too soon. Have fun with that." And then about a year and a half later, I get called into the office like, "You know, the Stevie Oki thing's going really well. Maybe we should bring that in house and start a management company in house." And yeah, this when you kick your feet up on top and you're like, well, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, especially because, you know, when I read a little bit about your background and like how you guys were friends and then kind of started working together, you know, I was curious as to how, what that transition is like, right? Because we get a lot of intra- entrepreneurs who listen to the show and like a lot of times like your best business opportunities or ideas are with people that are close to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's different trains of thought around you know, keep your friends, do like, don't do business with your friends or do business with your friends or, you know, were there any hurdles that you ran into um, or experience or how did you, how did that play out for you personally? I've never, you know, I was, I've, I've never had truly that experience of don't do business with your friends. I've always had a relatively positive experience when I did that, did that. But in this particular instance, like Steve wasn't my friend before we started working together. I think we both saw each other as a business opportunity. He's like, here's a smart guy who's well connected. Right. He can get my shit together. And I was like, here's a guy that I could sell to the cows come home. He's got, and I mean, I, he's also got a superstar sister at the time. Devin Aoki was, you know, in Fast and Furious and a supermodel, dating Levin Kravitz. So I just thought, I just knew all these little bottle service clubs would buy that. And then w- when the Dexter thing came around, I didn't know Paul Rosenberg at all. I actually idolized him because I was such a huge Eminem fan. I would watch his DVDs, the behind the scenes. So I knew exactly who Paul was. Detroit born and raised here. So uh, I, 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 knew, I knew exactly who Paul was. I knew his personality, like I, but I never met him. Um, and... AM, who we parted with, we had become friends. Um, so that was the only real, you know, and obviously by then, uh, by that point, this is about three years into me working with Steve, we had become friends. And uh, Lawrence, uh, we call him LV, who was uh, AM's primary manager and his original manager. And we weren't really friends. We were just like kind of colleagues. Like, I wouldn't even say friendly competitors. We just, you know, he, yeah, he, like had, he had business a, acquaintances. Yeah, we knew each other. We probably had hung out a few times, had drinks. And I just randomly got a call in New York saying, hey, you know, Paul would like to meet you. That's from LV. He said, Paul, I heard you're in New York. Paul wants to meet you. We want to talk, chat with you. So we went to the Spotted Pig, which he owns in New York. Right. And they pitched me this idea of a DJ agency. And I didn't really think twice about it. You know, I was like, well, I, I certainly could use help with Steve. And at the time, Am was at the, top of the, uh, at the top of his game. And I think in that hierarchy of celebrity DJs, right. Steve was closer to the bottom than the top. So there was, it was a no-lose situation for us. Um, now, over the years, I've definitely 
you know, what's been a weird experience, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners um, may or may not experience at some point in their life, is that you kind of come up in the sort of generations, whatever industry you're in, you come up in like sort of generations. So I always tell like our assistants, meet with the other assistants. You know, the people you meet with, like you may think that they're just, yeah, so good. are you. But like yeah. in five years, you're going to get promoted. They're going to get promoted. And you'd be surprised how many people I know have were the bottom, like people that are running agencies, running departments, running companies. When I met them, they were literally answering the phones. And I was, you know, passing out flyers. Well, it's true. I mean, you're talking about like networking. And I have an experience where like my first writing job was a show on BET and we had a writer's assistant. Cool, cool guy. Yeah. You know, and you're like, yeah, got along with him just fine. Um, and then uh, fast forward to, I don't know, a few years ago, he created America's Next Top Model, um, had a development deal at Paramount. Now it's created Blackish and a bunch of well, other stuff. And it's, it's the exact same thing. Like it's, it's the art of networking mm-hmm. and, you know, early in your career, which yeah. is, is most people aren't thinking about as if you're 24, 25, like I said, it's the rent, it's fun, fun party, yeah. but not really like strategizing. You don't for think that a, the people that you're term. partying with at 24 are going to be people running companies in 10 years. Right. And as long as you can stick it out for 10 years and not, you know, lose your way. You'll yeah. be you, just by doing your job and doing it above average, not even doing it well. well what do, kept what kept you in? Because you know, I, it, I mean, I guess it was just the love of the game for for, for the most part. Like, because you had to endure to have that Paul Rosenberg meeting. I never, I, I never really had the only time that it was really difficult for me. I would say, and it really wasn't that difficult, was when I got the job at the record label. I was I remember very specifically at the dot com job. I was making forty grand a year, um, and the record label job paid twenty four. Um, and even at 40k, I was like, pay cut. Yeah. <laughs> I remember like haggling real hard to get 26 grand right. and, and, and then having to call my mom at like 22 being like, Hey, I'm going to, I want to do this. You know, if things go poorly, <laughs> will I be able to move back home? Like, <laughs> wow. would you be able to lend me some money? Like yeah. I'm, 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 I'm told like I'm doing it, but like, I just want to know that like, I have a little bit of a safety net. She's like, I, I should, you know, very good mom. She's like, I believe in you. I'm sure you'll do fine. I remember I spent the last two months, like not spending anything at my old job and I saved every dime. And for whatever reason, it just worked out. I got I got raises pretty quickly. I got promoted pretty quickly. I mean, I will say, in the entertainment industry, um, a lot of people think you don't need to go to college. I actually think it really, really helps. And not because of anything you learn there, other than the fact that like doing your homework, answering email, like meeting deadlines. Right. It's so undervalued and underappreciated in the entertainment. There's so many people who don't who didn't go to college, who don't didn't have a great education. That, you know, they're hustlers. There's a lot of hustlers in the entertainment right. industry. And you can get ahead as a hustler, but if you really succeed, it's the people that are that are either either really amazing at something or really good at everything. And right. I, I wouldn't say that I'm amazing at any one thing, but I'm pretty good at everything. And then, like, I, I answer, like, every day at night I go to bed, every email in my inbox is answered. I think I get anywhere between five and 800 emails a day. And I read every single one. I answer every single one. I get back to everybody. I have to do lists. Like I just being organized. It's also kind of like your role as a you know as a manager, right? Is to kind of be. You would think. <laughs> you have no idea how many managers you I deal with that like just don't answer email and that and are very good at like when when the artist asks like what happened to that oh you know the label messed this up and when you if you actually know what happened no you didn't get back to the guy and the opportunity went away. And then you screamed at somebody because you it was it wasn't your fault. They should have called you six more times. Right. It happens like you more than, than I mean I, I for for most managers it probably happens every day. And uh, you know and I would imagine 
just like the 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 role. It's kind of like a producer, right? Like uh, most people don't know what a, a film producer does, right. right? It's like it's a title and it sounds cool. Same thing with music management. It, kind of the nuts and bolts, if you can get into it, is just like what's what's a day like? I, you know, what amasses to five hundred emails plus meetings plus phone calls plus yeah. you know just babysitting if you need to do it. But I mean. The, the example you give actually is actually probably accurate. The closest analogy would probably be a film producer, which is basically you're everything and anything. You know, a film producer could be sitting in on casting. They could be meeting with directors. They could be, you know, vetting different, you know, set designers. They're, the job of a producer is to put the pieces together. Same with the manager. The job of the manager is to, when we pitch an artist, and it never works out this way, but the, the, the actual pitch is that you're going to focus on the music and every, we'll handle everything else. So you can just be creative. In, in practical that's the ideal, right? And that's that's sort of like Nirvana. That's what we're all striving to get to, and it will never be that way because inevitably every artist has something that they want. They want their voice heard. They want to deal with something. They want to know why this hasn't been handled or why that. They they always get their hands dirty in some way or another. Right. I've never been an artist that doesn't care about anything but the music. There's always something that they that they want to. And some artists like Steve is hands on in everything, particularly because he owned a record label ten years right. before he became a DJ. He was a businessman first, so he. Do you find that helps or does it, or does it hurt? Right, like is it because it, it helps ha- more than it hurts? Right. It, I mean, it definitely. There's a lot of things that he'll push for that I think are either unreasonable or unlikely, and he'll just just do it. And lo and behold, they said yes. Who would have thunk that like you know such and such artists would consider this or like they've said no to everything else and that last thing. So, excuse me. I've learned over the years not really to say no to him when he asks for something, but to say let me find out. Right. And because if you find if you if you say no to to somebody when they ask for something, just because of your assumption, you're limiting a potential opportunity. The, the answer no doesn't really hurt. The only time it hurts is when you've asked the same question fifty times and you're becoming the a hole who just pesters. Right. But you know, just, if someone says I want to work with, I mean, best example I have an artist named uh, Holy Ghost, they're mm-hmm. an indie rock band from Brooklyn. And the first album they had Michael McDonald on it. <laughs> it was super ironic, and I remember we asked them. That's we just awesome, started, yeah, we had just asked, started working with them. And we asked them, um, "How did you end up?" Like it was all just kind of very, you know, very kind of hipster and, and cool and disco-y in Brooklyn. And then one track with featuring Michael McDonald. So we asked, "Where did that come from?" He's like, "Well, you know, Nick was or Alex was like singing over the song, and he was just I just felt like he was doing like a Michael McDonald impression. Like his voice, he was trying to he was like trying to hit those notes." Right. And James Murphy from LCD Sound System was like, "Well, why don't you just ask Michael McDonald to be in it?" He's like. Why? Why would Michael McDonald talk to some unknown Brooklyn band and be on their album? He's like, I don't know. You just ask him. So sure enough, someone in James's band was cousins with somebody in Nashville who knew right. Michael McDonald so and so, and the request got passed along, and Michael heard it and said, Yeah, sure, why not? Well, that's interesting because you know I think when you are dealing with I'll call them high functioning creatives, yeah. right? Like they have these whimsical visions of the, all whimsical uh, you know, yeah. future like we uh interviewed uh keith Klinkscales, who's okay. the ceo of revolt tv yeah. you know and works for puffy and he described puffy as like beautifully unreasonable right <laughs> it's like he'll have a vision for something and, like go figure it out and you know and by tuesday <laughs> yeah i i once worked uh, at that dot-com company i worked out for a minute there was one guy who was like the kind of the guy who did everything who was the smartest guy there and i remember our ceo was very much like that he would just spew out all these ideas and expect everyone like minions to go around and, and do them. And I remember talking to him, I was like, how do you deal with that? Like every day he has another harebrained idea. It's like, it's like, I just consider like he vomits on my desk, a thousand ideas. <laughs> and I pick through the vomit and find a couple good ideas in there. And as long as you tend to those ideas, they, they feel like they bring her. They're not, they don't necessarily expect that every single thing, you know, is, is fall through on. And usually I'll find like if, 
if I hear something and, and they say, hey, I, I want to open uh, uh, a juice restaurant in, in Boise. Like, right. Great idea. Cool. Next day, hey, are, are, did you look into that boy, that juice restaurant? Like, oh, wow, you remembered it. <laughs> you know, like, I, yes, I'm going to look into that. You know, like, right. I'd be surprised how many things are just well, kind like, of fle- fleeting moments. Like, I get a lot of emails from different artists, and they'll send an email like two hours later, like, please ignore that email. I, you know, the show had gone poorly. I was sick. I was just in a headspace, and I, I didn't mean like any, and it's not usually like a, I, I screamed at anyone, but like they'll say, I never want to tour again, or this tour is horrible, and or whatever it is, they'll have some moment. Or some idea, and it's usually sort of an in the moment. They're they're surrounded, and also artists and creatives are tend to be surrounded by people, and they also tend to be very impressionable. Right. And funnily enough, they're rarely impressionable by their by their own team. It's very hard to get, and I think it's like family. Like when your brother or your mom says you did good at something, it doesn't really mean anything to you. But yeah. when someone looks at your painting, it's like that's really good. You're like, really? You think so? So I could I can't tell you how many times I've told someone an idea and don't you know don't get any play from it, and then. You know, their their acupuncturist says, you should buy a house. You know, it's great investment. <laughs> and then the, I'm looking at getting a house. Like, great. I've been to right. you that for two, that for two years. Well, how, you know, and I guess how important is the source of the, you know, the creativity, right? Or the opportunity. Because I think when you are, um, you know, a manager and opportunity, like filtering through opportunities, both artist generated and just kind of coming from your network of collaborators and peers, you know, how do you filter and go, okay. That's if, that's if, probably the, you probably hit the nail on, the, and I've never even thought about it. That's probably the hardest part of the job is that especially when you're at, when you're at a low level, you know, uh, AM actually told us, he used to always tell us, uh, well, he told us two things. One is, uh, uh, was it, uh, starve the ego, feed the soul. So we all sort of live by that, all the people who knew him. The second thing he's like, never say no. Like, especially when you're coming up, like just take any opportunity. Even if it sounds like a bad opportunity, you never know. What can come of it? Like, I can't tell you how many times we've done tours and made no money. And then a $100,000 offer comes for some unknown band because some guy who works at some you know company was at that show in San Francisco and loved him and talked to his boss. So you never know. Like, so many times we've done bad shows with, like, 25 people. But the, fan, the artist will be like, I know I didn't want to do that show. And, and it was poorly attended. But, man, those are the 25 most excited fans I've yeah. ever met. And they cheered. And they stayed till the end. And we signed autographs. And it was actually the best show of the year. So, mm. like, even the bad opportunities – can be great, but, but, but to, at a higher level, I mean, like I, I, I probably get one email a day for a new, new app that wants, you know, Steve Aoki to get involved. They offer either equity or so you got my media. email then I, I, a couple of them. Okay, cool. Uh, I've been doing the, it. Daily. Did you get my auto reply? <laughs> I wrote that myself. <laughs> um, auto trash. That's, that's, and that's my app idea. So it was auto trash and you missed the, the whole opportunity. Well, no, that, that technically I didn't. <laughs> trash, trash did happen <laughs> automatically. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, like that's an example. I get one every. It's, it's really difficult to vet through them because you, nobody wants to miss the, the next Facebook. So you sort of, I think, for different opportunities, you look for different benchmarks. Did it come through someone you trust or know? Um, are there social media or other indicators like bellwethers that like, you know, uh, an artist being a great example. We get, I get pitched artists all the time. Yeah. And every now and then I'll, you know, I probably get 20 or 30 of those emails a day. Um, and I mean, well, okay. I'll give you an example. So um, I get 20 or 30 emails a day and some of them are from hip hop artists. And those are always like, yo man, you get just check my tracks. I'm like, all right, delete. Some of them are from like, I am a producer in Italy and the, and the email is two pages long of like his life has like trash. One of them I remember getting, I got, well, okay, I'll tell you one great one I got was from these two young producers, um, and they sent 
a screenshot of their of their Facebook growth. They sent their top five songs and how they charted on different platforms. Hmm. Literally, it was like a one paragraph thing and like six or seven bullet points. And they're all great. I was like, you know what? Just the fact that you were put that much like thought into it and it was organized, you, I'll, I'll listen to it. And it turned out to be good when we signed them. The other one was almost the opposite, but he hit a couple things. And what, we work with this producer named uh, Jaleel Beats. Uh, he produced uh, most of Meek Mill's stuff, uh, Bobby Schmurter's Hot Boy, uh, Vic Mensa and Skrillex Track. Mm-hmm. And he, he's a big multi-platinum hip-hop producer. I wasn't familiar with him at the time, and I got the typical sort of borderline unprofessional email just, yo, man, check out my boy Jaleel Beats. He's, he's dope. Well, I forget, but, but, but just say he produced you know these three or four tracks. And I was like, a lot of people work on tracks. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And, and right. you see, like, and I was like, eh. But you know what? Like, it's, it's worth doing my homework because I'd hate to be the guy that passed on, you know, the next ill Mike Will or DJ Mustard or Skrillex or whatever it is. So I, I sent it to the our, guy in the office who really follows that stuff. And he's like, like that guy's that produces amazing. Like he's not like that. He's not super known right now, but everyone knows that his tracks are the best. So we did our due diligence. We started talking to him. We asked around. Turned out like the guy was like his best friend. He was just trying to help. And he, he had been his manager. And I obviously I have like quotation marks. Right. But he was very honest. And, he, and also the other thing was that when I started talking to him, um, it goes to my earlier point. He emailed me back immediately. And when I asked him, like, why, why did you hit us up? It's like, you know, I kind of hit up everybody, if I'm being honest. But you're the only person who, who replied immediately. Right. And actually showed genuine interest. Because it's a matter of just getting back to people. And when we asked him for stuff... Five minutes later, here's five examples of songs he's worked on. Has he ever mixed music together? Here's five minutes later. Here you go. Everything we asked him That's came awesome. diligently, yeah. came immediately. It wasn't chasing him down. And, and I can't tell you how many times we pick up artists. Well, so part, I mean, like part of it is like gut. And then the other part is kind of, you know, yeah. it, it, you're looking for these non-essential things. It's, it's almost, uh, you know, at least getting the foot in the door is less about the quality of the stuff. But your, your you know, your professionalism and communication plus your ability yeah. to, to be a good manager and be diligent about like finding those nuggets. Because you, cause you know, like, uh, you know, if, for instance, you get a uh, shitty email from somebody, like, that person's probably going to be hard to deal with. You yeah, know, yeah. Career, I mean, for, for, for music, you know, for me at least, it comes down to two things. One, it's the music itself. And then some of it's, it's kind of, a, there's a lot of social media involved now. So it's a little easy, it's a little easier to moneyball it. You can look at someone's SoundCloud account, their Spotify, their iTunes, just see like, oh, they're selling well, they're, or they're, they're getting some kind of traction based on, you know, uh, uh, kind of looking from the outside in. Yeah. Um, for bi- like true business opportunities, that's where it becomes a little more important, you know, for uh, uh, companies that, you know, will ask uh, uh, who your investors are. Uh, do you have, a, you have a financial plan? Um, we get a lot of like drink companies, either alcohol or juice, and, like who's your distributor? Like you, you do enough of these deals and you talk to enough people that you kind of learn the buzzwords. I couldn't run an energy drink company, but I know the things that get pitched to me about every energy drink company. Right. So when I get an email about an energy drink, drink company, I know the four or five things to ask. And if they can't answer those questions, it's a waste of your time. So I mean, I remember we had a great one, like some water company that wanted to work. And I was like, every question I asked, like, I don't know yet, but we're, we're, we're figuring it out. Like, all right, you're definitely... <laughs> it's like, it's water. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's who's your distributor? What's your financial plan? Um, you know, who, where are you bottling? Where are you... Like, it's just, they, just, they didn't have anything. And then sometimes they have everything... And you'll just, particularly in the app and tech space, right. then the question, for me at least, is, is it either, is it solving a, a problem that people that exist, or is it at least solving a problem that you didn't know existed? Yeah. Right? I hate the apps that are basically saying, hey, Facebook or Instagram or some social media, some app exists, and we do it slightly yeah, different, exactly, or, yeah. or, or we're a patch. Mine like, is six seconds. We're eight seconds. Yeah. I, which is an actual pitch I've heard. I mean, there's, I've, I've, got, I've also gotten <laughs> the one I remember for a long time. It was all about... Um, Instagram doesn't do video. We're making a video platform. Like, 
what happens when Instagram does video? Like then exactly completely. Yeah, I mean, or maybe when YouTube does video, what happens? What happens then? Yeah, great great example is Meerkat <laughs> and Periscope. You know? Yeah, yeah. They, they got squashed overnight because yep. Twitter just turned on Periscope. Oh, now Vine, you know, all that stuff. It's like they're all kind of reacting to each other. So whenever someone just has, it's it's just like, you know, Instagram, but it does this. Like that doesn't really right. move the needle. Snapchat, you know, I probably if I had heard Snapchat, I I, I might have been skeptical and passed on it. But in retrospect, it it certainly serves a need that didn't exist anywhere. I thought personally, I remember hearing what it was like. It's a little hokey. Who wants their messages to disappear everybody wants to be able to right. look back over the years but some the, shady people but what they did do well and what they they recognized was that you know as social media has become more prevalent um kind of how do i put it making your image your text whatever beautifully crafted and perfectly presented has become less meaningful so what what snapchat made it okay to do was just post a video that's handheld. You know, people spend so much, I spend so much time on my Instagram photos, like adding filters and getting it just right <laughs> exactly. or tweeting out the funniest tweet, but do I use the or as yeah. there? You know, like just trying to get it just right. Snapchat made it okay. Like you just post exactly as you see it and don't worry, it's going to be gone tomorrow. No, yeah. no one's going to go back and judge you because you have shaky, you know, shaky camera holding. Um, no, that's great. I, I think about like that, that whole ecosystem of how we communicate and, you know, the, the idea of artists and social media and what an artist has to do nowadays, even probably, you know, not even so much as 10 years ago when you started, right. To make a name for themselves, to bootstrap and to, when you talk about like management allows the artist to be the artist. Right. Right. But so many artists now have to be so much more than just an artist just to get the recognition. So very true. is there, I don't know, it, how do you bridge those two different methodologies? Because, you know, you can spot talent, but if I'm spending all my time like trying to build my Twitter following uh, and not twiddling around with my gu- gu- guitar. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'll say on our end, on the Dexter side, um, and, you know, I would say part, a lot of this is due to a couple artists. You know, for me, there's other artists at the, uh, company we had a, a, a client called the glitch mob we have a client called they're very social media savvy so their manager got really savvy very early on um and with same with steve so steve was sort of built without knowing it he's custom built for social media he's upset he has an obsessive compulsive uh, obsession with cataloging and archiving things like it's really he, he i mean if you go on his social media you'll see like Aoki Nap 138 or whatever he does, he loves to number them. He loves to catalog them. He'll create, a, he'll, he'll himself, he'll create specific accounts for each experience. You know, he just, he just, everything from his closet, it's all about catalog, catalog and archiving. So his thing was that I go to all these cities and I'm the only one experiencing this moment other than the people that are there. So I might have a great show in Kuala Lumpur. No one's going to know that I had a great show in Kuala Lumpur. So what he started doing early on was taking his friend who's a videographer. Uh, there was a guy named Mark the Cobra Snake, who was like a hipster photographer mm-hmm. around LA. Yeah. Had a very popular site, and they're best friends. So we started bringing Mark everywhere. Very tiny shorts. Yes, very tiny shorts. A little brain showing uh, <laughs> sometimes, uh, but uh, definitely the, the 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 youngest, oldest person you've ever exactly met. right. It's like he looks like your he looks like your 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 grandpa Maury, but yeah. he, he in, looks, his, in his heyday, like I mean, grandpa Maury in his heyday. He's not even thirty yet. I don't think. <laughs> I, I, I doubt it. Um. Anyways. But he was taking Mark around uh, to all these shows, and all of a sudden, Steve became like sort of an internet celebrity just through Mark's website. And then, you know, eventually, no, they never stopped becoming friends, and Mark didn't want to tour at the rate that Steve did. So Steve's like, well, I'm bringing my own photographer who will go to every show. And then it was, I'm bringing my own videographer. And we started putting that stuff on social media. And then really, when social media exploded, like I said, Steve was built for that. Because when, like, when we first started working with a company called The Audience, who does uh, social media for a lot of celebrities, they no longer do for celebrities. They have a different business model. Yeah. But 
at the time, that was it. Their number one complaint, they, I remember they said, we have an issue with Steve that we've never had with any client ever. It's the opposite of too much content. Sifting through 200 photos a night, you know, two, four videos a week. Like we, he just churns out that content because he's obsessed with documenting every moment of his life. Right. He takes videographers out with him on days off at home. Like just on the off chance that there might be some celebrity or some ex- moment that doesn't get captured, like God forbid. Wow. So um, to answer your question, you know, we building out learning and we also learned a lot from that company the audience so at dexstar we our largest department you know we have a lot of departments but departments are usually one or two people um except for digital that's a six person department now um four five people doing full-time social media and gra- graphic design um running accounts for for artists and, and when you run an account for an artist um to your earlier kind of point it runs sort of a a, a spectrum from on the on one far end is like we're gonna do everything for you, with really the exception of Twitter because Twitter and someone Instagram they're kind of a Snapchat also it's they're, it's very personal. Right. I can't tweet what you're having for lunch. Yeah. Only you know that. But Facebook, YouTube. Text me what you're eating so I can tweet it. You could. It's, it's happened. <laughs> but you know, particularly with YouTube and Facebook, um, which are the two largest platforms, they're algorithm based, and so it's all about when you post and how you post and what you say and what. Are you posting a video or a photo or is it text only? Are you embedding it? Like there's so much to it. You have to, you've kind of got to become a social media expert to, to do it. Right. So we hired six social media experts to do it. And we do it for, for the vast majority of our artists. On the other spectrum, some artists want insist on doing it themselves. And even on that, we still work with them because our guys will tell them, you know, I saw last night you posted something, but you posted it at midnight and it, it, it performed really poorly because your fans aren't up at midnight. Your ideal posting times are, from you know 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. So whenever you have a thought, if it posted at, th- at those hours, if you don't have the time, just email me the right. photo and the caption. I'll put, I'll do it for you. Make your life easier. And so every, everyone, you'll know. I mean, we've even gotten to the point that we're having other companies, other artists, other businesses asking us to do their social media for them because we really fine tuned it. Um, originally, I think a lot of people outsourced it, and I, at the end of the day, I think it's it's, it's hard to outsource because. The, the people that run your social media need to really know you intimately. Right. And if they don't know you intimately, then they're, they're, there's often a disconnect. Well, that's, I mean, that's also like an extension of what you do as a, you know, as a management company, right? Yeah. Like you have to understand the artist to a, to the nth degree and, you know, live in their shoes and think like they think, but also then turn around and think like a business person. Yeah. Um, is You're it, a translator for, for the, um, most of my time, I'm taking like what a, an artist tells me and then translating it into like business sense so I can explain it to like, some sponsor or some company, like what the artist said, because right. they would never understand each other. Like duck feathers and gold teeth. You know? uh, I got would, you. Yeah, yeah. And you'd be like, he would like a more <laughs> contemporary feel. Yeah. Right. And something shimmery to make people smile. Yeah. Um, I just made that. That's good. Uh, so Dexstar as a company, right? Is yeah. What is the culture or the philosophy? Because, you know, there's a lot of independent individual managers sure. that are out there. But then, you know, when you're building an organization, you have to, like... Be a collective, and also you're representing individuals. Yeah, it's, it, 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 uh, you know, I didn't set out to, to run a company. Um, and I, I do find that I spend more time running the company than I'd like to. I'd like to be spend more time. I, I personally enjoy the management, you know, right. the act of managing, but I spend a lot of time like that assistant doesn't like that assistant. But, you know, to, to speak of how we built the company, you know, one thing we learned early on through a few different experiences, um, you know, one was Adam passing away, uh, A.M., um, I had another artist that like was very popular, and then you know through no fault of really anyone's, you know, just cha- t- uh, interest changed. She s- fell off. Mm-hmm. You know, just popularity waned. Um, we had another artist uh, became huge drug addict, 
like not overnight, but it was growing. And then eventually, and, and he'd gone from sleeping on the manager's couch to opening for the Red Hot Chili Peppers for a 50 grand a night. And then fires his manager and like, you know, drug induced binge to hire his real estate agent as his new, who's doing drugs with him. So we all, had, all the primary managers had lost artists kind of through no fault of their own. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and also you, we were never really funded. Um, Paul was generous and he, he kind of put up the original money just to pay the rent to get us going for the first six months or a year. But beyond that, everything was bootstrapped. So whatever came in is what was spent. Right. Um, so that gave us sort of one, one limitation was we don't have the money to go find the biggest manager and cut him a big check to buy him out and bring him in. Uh, the other limitation was we're, we, we, I mean, the, the guys who started it were all really friendly and we actually have very similar personalities you know, people who talk to us generally they were very fair we're fun to hang out with it's more of a more of a guys guys kind of vibe um so and also the last thing i'll say is all of us sort of had our our kind of star client so none of, none of us needed the money from the business meaning i make so much money off of steve i don't i don't worry if i if if dexter cuts me a check every month so you are making more than a thousand dollars a week or, a month, a lot or of whatever money. it was. Nobody like, but the, the main, the main uh, owners all like. Paul doesn't need money from Dexter. You know, Eminem. Well, he's he's good for for life. You know, like right. so. None of us were counting on the business to make us money. At the end of the day, I think we just wanted the business to make our artists more successful. So everything we made, we reinvested immediately, and we I, we never took a distribution for like the first eight or nine years. Every time we made like, hey, we're a hundred thousand dollars profitable. Great, let's hire two more people. Yeah. Like we, everything was spent because at the end of the day, our, our main business, which is our artists, would do better. Company would do better. So that was really our philosophy. But you know, what what I was getting at is that what we learned is that we didn't want to invest so much, or or we didn't want to put all our eggs in the basket of an artist. What we decided is we were going to invest in managers because, hmm. and I, we'd seen a few examples of guys who had picked up artists and were, for lack of a better term, dicks. And when the artist's career would could wane, I mean, let's give you a good example: it's Bieber, Dick Star. That could have been the if you and, 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 and those I, people. I'll speak highly of Bieber, <laughs> Bieber. And, yeah. and his manager Scooter in this example. Like, you know, I, I saw someone else say this quote, and it's right. Like, you know, anybody can manage an artist on the way up. I mean, basically, it's just keep the train on the tracks right. and get out of the way. But when things get rocky, what do you do to keep your artist on track? Getting Bieber on on Comedy Central roast, genius. Right. Getting him to work with Skrillex and Diplo and, you know, hip, hip him up and make him current. Gene, like that stuff, is, that's when Scooter, who manages him, proved he's a great manager. It wasn't that he got Bieber to play arenas because that kid was going to play arenas no matter who managed him. Right. But to have Bieber fall down and then pick this kid back up and get him to be bigger than, than where he started, that's great. So what we looked at was managers that didn't have amazing rosters. You know, maybe they had two or three or four acts that weren't really making that much. It's enough to like maybe pay for them, pay for the rent and they, they were getting by. Right. But when you met them, you knew they were good people. They had a great head on their shoulders. They understood the business. And when you asked around, everybody liked them. Everyone said, that guy, he's great. I love working with him. He really gets it. He's never, he's, he's not, he's not hard to deal with. He gets back to me. So we one by one kept picking up managers right. that fit that, that category. And we just, you know, did, uh, did kind of splits with them. Like, Hey, you, we're, we're just partners from now on. We're not giving you ca- check up front. We're just going to partner on the business. And nine times out of 10, you know, you look at their roster six months to eight months later, they would have gotten rid of everything, everything they came in with. And they've got like six new artists that are all kicking ass. Right. Because they just needed the infrastructure. It's hard to do. It's hard well, it's to the be people, in- right? It, I mean, you, you're investing in the people and not necessarily the business. You know, I mean, they're one exactly. and the same, but it's. We, it's, we it's, passed it's up like- a lot of managers 
uh, to work with that wanted to come and partner with us that had great rosters that like, but I, I couldn't see myself sitting across from that person every single day, popping my head in their office for advice. Cause that's the way it works. So we're, I just, yesterday, I remember we brought, we had a new manager start and he, and literally with his first week, we signed him a new client and the client was in the office yesterday and there's two other managers. There's two other managers in the room that don't work with this client at all that are just sitting in the room with the client spitting ideas back and forth for about half an hour. Like they have other things to be doing, but everyone enjoys the actual man, everyone enjoys coming up with ideas and like, right. oh, I heard that song you're playing in your office. Who is that? Have you have you talked to Sirius XM about that song? Or have you reached out to like Snapchat? I just did this thing with them. We're all exchanging ideas. And the other th- I, the last thing I'll say actually is that because we were young when we started the company, relatively speaking, 26, 27, all, right. and everybody at the company was. Ironically, for whatever reason, we were all born in 77. I don't know why that just, we all, we're all the same year. Right. So none of us had all of the connections to kind of get ahead. So I, I didn't know who Jimmy, I, I mean, I, I knew who Jimmy Iveen was, but I didn't have access to him, but I, I knew how to get to the president of ultra records, which is the big dance label. So yep. what we learned early on is like, let's just rely on each other, you know, between the three or four of us that started it, we can kind of get to anybody individually. We're not that strong, but as a group, we are, we have all the connections that any one, any one great manager has between the four of us, we have it. And as we brought on more managers, we've often, the last thing we'll look at is do they fill sort of a, a gap? You know, so when we were doing all dance music, a guy named Joel Mark came in with a roster that included a CSS, Fisher Spooner, The Faint, and a couple other indie rock bands. We didn't have any any indie rock, and we wanted to be an indie rock. And he was a great guy. I worked with him a lot. So he filled a great gap for us. And all of a sudden, a quarter of our roster was indie rock. We recently brought on a rock manager who brought with him uh, Jane's Addiction and Smashing Pumpkins and Culture Club and Joy Formidable. We didn't have that. Yeah. You know, we, so we brought him like, and so a lot of it is just kind of seeing where do you fit into this company? Do we have three guys like you? Cause we're not, it's not about getting the highest like EBITDA, you know, we, we, a lot of people have approached us about like buying us out and they're like, well, the numbers aren't like huge. We're like, yeah, because I could, like, I could fire four people today and get a much bigger payday. But right. those four, like you can easily slim this company down and run bare bones. Like a lot of management companies do. Um, and you'll get by and you'll do well again, as your artist is coming up, Again, you just got to get out of the way, but to manage what we have like 60 plus artists now and to run radio and social media yeah. and digital PR, it's graphic design, music videos. Like we actually have all of those departments in house now. We basically mimicked a record label, even if we're not, even though we're not planning on self-releasing artists, but our record labels don't really, record labels don't do what they used to. And it's not really the record labels faults. You know, a lot of people blame the labels and, and, and they, they, they take a lot of fault for a lot of things. But if you look at what a record label does is they take you know, a little sliver of an artist's income, you know, and recorded music, at least for, for my generation, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't work in the music industry in the nineties when like you could have one hit record, put out a $17 CD and there, there were no singles. So everyone had to buy that crappy CD just to hear the one song they liked that, you know, I came up in the digital era where everyone can get exactly what they want a la carte. Yeah. So in music income is essentially just, I mean, there's someone I I saw Steve did an interview. He said he, he looks at it as a pension fund. Like that's just kind of a, a passive revenue stream. I remember talking to, I think it was a Geta's manager a year or two ago when he was really at the top. And I think she said, you know, recorded music is something like 4% of his revenue. Yeah. You know, so we don't count on that stuff. And now, so record labels, like you can't expect them to do all the stuff that they used to do because they don't make the money that they used to do. As a manager, we have the only true 360 business model. We're involved in every single facet of their career. So if we work to death on their music and it brings in, you know, one one hundredth of our revenue, doesn't matter because we're also commissioning the touring and the merch and all that other stuff. And at the end of the day, it's a, they're musicians 
all that stuff happens as a result of the music. Right. No. I'd say 95% of my day and most manager, most good manager day is spent on non-income generating stuff. Cause, but that is what leads to like touring that, that happens on its own. There's yep. agents, they, they, they'll do that, you know, and, and all you gotta do is say, I like that show. I don't like that show. We should do something like this. We should do something like that. And there's some finessing it of it, but really it's all the other stuff, the book deals, the TV appearances, right? all that stuff takes so much work and generate zero, or actually you lose money on them, but that's what makes the guy want to pay you $200,000 to show up and plug in your USB and spin records for two hours. That's that's incredible. Um, there's this air of, you know, resiliency, it sounds like, you know, that, go, that comes along with, especially the entertainment industry. I mean, like, you know, in other businesses that we've talked to from startups to, you know, to established companies and things like that, there's always like some level of like failure and then bounce back. But I think, in the entertainment industry, especially some of the things you've described, like the Justin Bieber fail and then, you know, uh, come back or even losing, you know, DJ AM mm-hmm. and, you know, these like really personal like moments that you have to survive. What how do you maintain like maintain that balance in, the, in, in, in a sense where it doesn't eat you up as an individual? It's I'd say that's actually probably one of the more difficult parts of the job because you I mean, one of the hardest parts of my job is whenever you have to let go of a client. It's different for. Uh, an agent or a publicist or or even a record label because it's very much a business relationship you know like you employ me to do a certain job and that certain job like i said it's a sliver of your career whether it be pr whether it be touring whether it be music and they just do that one job and for the most part they deal with the manager and then the manager filters all that information to the artist but what that means is that I, we talk to these artists every day you know they, they become like family friends you, you how many artists you know are the godfathers for their manager's kids and stuff like that you it's such a personal relationship that you know, I can't tell you how many artists that we've we've hung on to much longer than we probably should have. But like, I can't have that call with him. Like, I know exactly what he's going through. Right. I know that he, you know, the rents due, and that there's two more shows, and let's just get through those two shows. I just want to make sure this person is taken care of because you you're working with someone for two, three, four, five, ten years. It's, you can't just like part ways and say you know shake. It isn't just like changing you know cell phone distributors. Right. So um, how you deal with it, everyone's different. You know, um, I know. You know, with, with AM's passing, that was really difficult. On, like, he was also, you know, a lot of our best friends. So it, it, I would say it put sort of a cloud over our company for about a year, year and a half up while we all figured out what to do with our lives. What was it like during that time, right? Because it, it, that is a huge, I mean, that was a huge, like, cultural loss, let alone yeah. being super. He was also a partner personal. in the company. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Super personal for you business-wise and, you know, friend-wise. And like I said, a year goes by and you're like, you're still kind of dealing with it. Like, what was it that sort of made you keep going? Was it because because of the legacy? Was it just because of personal passion? You know, I, I'd say for um, a few years, you know, it, it's it's a weird thing. You know, I saw, I think it's, it's a very weird analogy, but um, you saw it happen with like Walt Disney when he passed. And again, with Steve Jobs passed, they always say, and I always, they always call it like the, the, the Walt Disney effect of like the 80s was basically Disney trying to figure out what to do without Walt Disney. And they said that the the most commonly, Thought thing was well, what would what would have what 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 would Walt have done, right? And I remember reading that Steve Jobs was very acutely aware of that, and he was telling as he was passing away, like, do not fall into that trap of the Walt Disney. I don't want you to worry about what I would have done. And he would reference the Walt Disney example. I don't want you to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want Apple to spend ten years figuring itself out because you're worried about what I would have done if I was still alive. So in that particular case, I, I think we spent about a year, year and a half, very similarly, like, you know, very attached to ideals. Um, you know, uh, business practices. I mean, I think he was in my my he was in my email signature as like in my roster. 
probably three years, two, three years. Like, I just couldn't bring myself to delete his name out of my email because yeah. it was just part of, you know, it kind of, I don't know what it meant. It didn't really mean anything, but it meant something, you know, that you're like, it's like throwing away a Bible. You know, like, you don't, yeah. it's just a piece of paper, but you know, you're not going to throw it but away. But it's also part, like, you know, even in a communication like that, that's part of your identity, right? Yeah. Like, you're whatever, the, the little signature, I'm, even on my email, yeah. which, like, there's something out on there that I'm not as involved in right now. I'm mm-hmm. like, eh. But it's part of your identity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was a big part of our identity. Um, so it definitely hit us hard. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, and they tell us, everyone says, you just put your head down and do the work because there were still, you know, 30, 40 artists that expected us to show up the next day. I mean, they they grieved. I mean, AM and Aoki were also best friends. So it hit him really hard as well. But at the end of the day, like, you know, there's there's 5,000 fans tomorrow night that are expecting him to show up. Right. They don't, they may not know who Steve Aoki, who, who DJ AM is. So they couldn't say, hey, he can't, he couldn't say, I'm not showing up tomorrow because a friend of mine passed away. Yeah. And I think if I remember correctly, we did cancel. There's no bereavement two. really. And yeah, know. I remember for him, it was, a, for him, it was particularly hard to deal with Steve being, because he was in Europe at the time and DJ Ann wasn't that big out there. So it's hard, it's hard to, um, it's hard to take a loss when no one around you can uh, uh, associate with that loss. Yep. Right. And no one really understood why he, other than like, Oh, your friend passed away. I'm really sorry to hear that. Whereas in the U S it was like on TMZ and on mm-hmm. CNN and everyone's sending condolences and there's flowers coming and everyone, every time you talk to someone, it's the first thing they bring up because they haven't seen you since it happened in Europe. They were like, okay, cool. You have a show tomorrow night. Sorry to hear about your friend. Yeah. You know? But they yeah. didn't, they didn't even know who he was or what his culture was. So I think at the end of the day, to answer your question, that you know, in a very long winded way, you just kind of put your head down and, and do the work. Yeah. Um, if you spend too much time, you know, thinking about any loss, then you're going to, things are going to pass you by. Is there one, uh, AM philosophy that you hold on to? You mentioned the, the, yeah. you know, the ego thing earlier, but is there, there, there was thing? another one is, I guess this comes from his mom. Um, his mom told him, uh, the, the one rule in life is find something you really enjoy doing and that you would be willing to do for free and then find someone to pay you to do it. That one always kind of resonated with me because that's Uh, really what I do. I loved music and had to find someone who would be willing to pay me to work in music. Now, now now look at you. (laughs) All grown up. (laughs) Exactly. So as we wind down, because I feel like I could ask you a thousand more questions, um, but I'm going to let you go. I told you we could talk for a long time. Remember we, this time we started off. Yeah. Um, The show's called Innovation Crush. You talked about startups earlier. You've talked about music. Um, We dipped into fashion a little bit, but you know, what do you see out in the world right now that you're personally crushing on? Like, did you you see you going like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I wish. Well, give me an example. So I know what you're talking about. What's your, what's your, what are you crushing on? Nobody's ever asked me that question. Well, there you go. I'm the host. Um, That, that chuckle from over. No. Um, What am I, what am I crushing on? See, it's not that easy. Uh, You know, I've done a hundred plus shows and I'm like, uh, you stopped me. I don't, now I don't like this. Let's delete this. Can we delete this episode? Start over. Um, Biometric measurement. Okay. Um, Because I think the idea of like what wearables has allowed us to do and like, be motivated about exercise and, uh, uh, you know, personal accomplishment and so on and so forth. Like there's an emotional health that's tied to that too. Um, and you know, these devices can also measure, you know, your physiology, physiology, like 24 seven. So you've got this sort of, am I happy? Right? Like Mm -hmm. what, what, what what are the moments throughout my day that are the happy moments? And I can go back to the data similar, like a Steve Aoki and say, Oh, four 30 every day is like when my heart rate is the calmest or whatever. And you're like, Oh, this is what I've been doing at four 30 every day. Right. It's, it's these, this passive sense of, um, getting results from life that are able to help you live life better. 
Cool. Good podcast, huh? Yep. Yep. Good. Wrap it up. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you for joining us. Uh, I know. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, the one I and I, I don't think mine like is me super. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I like biometric data too. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> um, you, you had me at bio. Um, so I guess the one I, I, I that's always kind of fascinated me over the last couple of years um, is sort of the subscription model, and I don't mean like you know BarkBox and stuff, but sort of what Spotify and YouTube and Netflix are doing to our culture and not in a negative way, but, and also the generation generational difference. So it, it still means something to me to have a CD or a piece of vinyl, but should it, right? So kids that are growing up today, they, it doesn't mean anything to own. And even an MP3, like we have an artist that we're working with, um, that we, we've, we, we, he decided to go self-release. He used to be at a major label. Um, and we, we would, we would start self-releasing his music and we're like the weekly sales on a single would be like 87 copies. And it's like, you spend like $15,000 on the video and all this crap. But then you look at the streams on Spotify, like 30,000 streams a day. And I was like, right. well, if you do the math, but well, we're still making like a hundred after everyone takes their cut, you make about a hundred. He's making about 150 bucks a day on, on he's actually equivalently selling whatever it is, uh, 3000 copies or something, you know, wow. three, three, yeah. whatever it is. But and so we got, it got so much that we're like, well, why don't we just tell people if they'll add that song to their playlist, we'll give them the MP3 for free, which Ooh. No label would do that, but at the end of the day, like, well, the MP3 doesn't mean anything. And, and, and there is they, the kid does think that, like, oh, cool, I get the MP3 to the song, I can listen to whenever I want. Sure, but like, he was never going to buy that MP3. You know, right. it just it, it's it's a weird, it's a virtual t- gift, right? So like, that there's a whole generation of kids. Like, let's see, what's 2000? What six coming up on 2016? Mm-hmm. So if you can drive today, you never lived with slow internet. You never ever had to experience what dial-up was from the. You never even had experience with Wi-Fi, like hard connection. Mm-hmm. Like sixteen-year-olds have never lived without Wi-Fi. Like that's crazy to me, you know. And, and those kids buying a CD is foreign to them. Buying a DVD, buying a song, like why would you when it's all subscription? Like what? What's the difference between between having access and physically owning? Right. right. So even to, even to the point of the MP3, which is a weird gray area, it's it's a digital thing, right? So like you can't hold it, you can't touch it. But I do like the idea that I, I have I have this MP3 file on my computer and I can do whatever I want with it. I can cut it. I can well, see. That's, like I still miss the the idea of having, and maybe because I'm old, like you and I are. Like I'm I'm 76, you're 77. But it's like ha- like sure. being able to 76. <laughs> Whoa, man. 75. <laughs> you may as well say 74. Um, no, but you like you look through. Uh, you know, uh, you listen to an album. You're looking at the photos. You're touching like the high quality paper. And I will say this because you know you think about Adele and maybe even taylor swift right they were yeah. like we're not doing streaming go i went to the store and i bought adele's album like the day it came out yeah but the, the, those i mean those two examples are, are you know unique they're, yeah they're unicorns right like right. it made sense for adele because she had a demographic her demographic are like soccer moms thank right? you <laughs> she just called me a soccer mom no 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 but here's the thing that's probably 50 percent of her fan base but she has she had the ability to tap into like there's old women there's kids like Everyone likes Adele. Like I remember in the '90s, everyone loved Lauren Hill. That one year, that album, Mr. Like, <laughs> yes, if true. you said you didn't like Lauren Hill, you might as well have your, you know, you might as well say I hate puppies. You know, like <laughs> if anyone says I hate Adele, like have you? I've never heard anyone say right. I don't like Adele. It just it, it's like sinful in culture. So she captured a moment. I remember someone else in our company saying like, well, you know, three million copies. Is, like I listened to that album. It's not that great. Like we're not gonna be listening to this in ten years. Like it doesn't matter. I was like, I was like, name your favorite album off of uh, name, name your favorite track off of the NSYNC album that was a previous record holder. None of them. 
Like none of those were like it's just you capture a moment in time, right? Like lightning in a bottle. Like everybody loves Adele. Everyone's been waiting for the follow up album, and she she you know it's basically a marketing point. But to your earlier point, I think that we're in the middle of a little bit of a, a swing back. Yeah. And I think we're we've swung all the way into the subscription model. And what you're seeing, for example, vinyl sales are having the year after year is getting bigger and bigger and topping vinyl sales. Like I think every year is the biggest vinyl selling year in history because kids do want it's almost like the, it's like the shop local you know buy yeah. local you know people do want that connection back to the physical world and we've all gotten so enamored with the digital world and what it can do for you people are kind of getting coming back to like but i want to have something like yeah. i can't put my 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 kindle i can't put it up on the wall and show all my friends the books i've read you know so and but cds don't really serve that purpose the way they did for us you know right but vinyl does vinyl it's big it's pretty the packaging you can just kind of go to town yeah, on it's it. an experience it's an experience and yeah. i think people people still want experience and that's why you know despite music sales going down the drain music industry is not going anywhere people aren't not going to shows because you can't replicate that live music experience you know i remember hearing um one of the reasons i wanted to work in music at the end of the day versus film or tv and all the stuff the one thing that kind of resonated with me was that music is there's something about music that is timeless meaning like you know, there was music. The cavemen had music. Mm-hmm. There, the Romans, they didn't have movies. They didn't have TV. They had storytelling. Right. But music in our current form has always existed from the drums. Like vinyl has been around for 100 plus years and we're still enamored with it. Like yeah. it, there's something timeless about it. I remember my, my, my uh, sixth, no, sorry, ninth grade math teacher. She would make us sing every formula. So I, I can still sing the quadratic formula because uh, I, I remember the melody. And her, Feel free. X equals negative B plus or minus square root of B squared all over 2A. Only, and I think I messed up part of it, but I, I only know that little, the ups and downs. Right. And her, I remember she made us sing a billion of those. And her, her rationale was that she had read that during all those horrible Nazi experiments, one of the things they tried to do was get rid of people's memories. And the one thing they never could get rid of was songs people had learned. There's something innate about music. It resonates somehow. Right. I mean, we, we met, um, Steve likes to interview, you know, cultural icons and stuff. So we had met Mickey Hart from the Grateful Dead hmm. and mm-hmm. he's doing uh, research at UCSF with this PhD about how music uh, affects your biorhythms in the brain. And his moment, uh, his aha moment was he, he had a mother, I think, who had really bad Alzheimer's and she had a quote unquote moment of clarity when he played a song and all of a sudden like he just snapped. So there, I think there's something innate, you know, there's something in our genes about that, that whether, whether you call it music or just like patterns, whatever it is, you know, that's, that's the, uh, the thing that got you that grabs me. That's great. Um, no, it is. It, uh, that's uh, it's very poetic, <laughs> and, and I don't mean that in a in a sarcastic way. I think it is like the one true art, like art and paintings, like things like that. You have you have to interpret, and yeah. like a small percentage of those things are going to resonate with you in a long term. Yeah, I mean, you can go to Mongolia and they have no TV, no no electricity. Right. But they're still singing songs. Yeah, yeah. That's just something about music that is is in our is in our DNA, and I, I I don't think anybody knows why or where it came from, but something about you know a musical pattern just yeah. resonates. Uh, last but not least, sure. Um, uh, Another uh, crush? I, I can nope, nope, okay. no, 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 no. Don't. I'll, I'll do so this. I can talk about Jessica Alba. For <laughs> um, uh, that's you, that's a, such a never mind. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, I definitely consider you an innovator in the space. I mean, even you know how you. Um, organically came up with innovations back in your magazine days, mm-hmm. and like, oh, why don't we do it this way? And, and just kind of like not 
kind of doing it apparently and and you know how you've built the even the culture of your company right yeah. um but i'd i'd like to for you to finish this phrase um innovation to me is i almost said the most cliche thing um trying to do things that haven't been done before there's a, a great one of my favorite quotes of all time was that uh the young always try to achieve the impossible and succeed time and time again yeah, we spend so much time saying no because of experience. And as you get older, I think the, no, the answer becomes no more and more often. I think the more often you try things that haven't been tried or that shouldn't be tried, you'd be surprised. Like I said, with with I can't tell you how many times Steve asked me to do things that I think are just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, the answer is yes. Yeah. So I think just just always trying the unachievable, you'd be surprised. You know, one out, if we, one out of a hundred times the unachievable is achieved, that's amazing. Yeah. You know? That's just so true. So true. Well, thank you, man, for for uh, joining us. Thank you. This is great. Every, uh, by the way, where can everybody find out uh, find you on the Twitterville or, or text? <laughs> yeah, sure. Text uh, best way would be uh, Instagram is probably the easiest, and it's uh, Matt Avelli. So it's M A T T A V E L I. I've also got a Twitter. Uh, same thing. M A T T A V E L L I. Someone took one of the others. It's really Damn annoying. It. Um, and you, know, you can find me on Facebook and you know, the website is Dexstar.com right now. We just have a little placeholder cause there's some, some uh, exciting things happening in the company. We want to kind of reveal it all at once, but, um, yeah, find me on Instagram, find me on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, Matt Colon, M-A-T-T-C-O-L-O-N. Not hard to find Google. There you go. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush and we'll talk to you next time. 